Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show Best Bits, the podcast which brings you all the best bits from Dr. Squee Radio Show. If you want to catch it live, please listen every Thursday, 9pm to 11pm, or in the new year, in our new time slot from 8pm till 10pm. And if you listen live, you can hear all the music which we don't have the rights to play on the podcast. But for now, please enjoy this. Welcome to the show with your friend and mine. So tell me, Dr. Squee, who's it gonna be this time? We like to hear you talk and we love to hear you listen. And if you are not subscribed, you won't know what you're missing. So welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Osmond from the Firesign Theater. Whenever I'm kind of wandering around the blogs trying to find something really interesting, I go to the bear and I ask the bear to show me the Dr. Squee show. It's wonderful. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee show. I am Dr. Squee and this is my show. Now, I'm just going to put it out there on Front Street tonight. I am not feeling great. I have had some kind of bug. Don't worry, it's not the Rona, it's not the vid. I have not been struck. But I've just got a little bit of authority thing, so I'm just going to just brave it through as much as I can. We have got such a show for you tonight. My main guest, you've just heard him there, it's David Osman from the Fire Sign Theatre, which is an American, like if you haven't heard of them, an American comedy group who've been going for just donkey's years. They go way back into the 60s. And uh, they're kind of like a mix, if you will, between Monty Python, uh, the goons, the goodies, uh, maybe a little bit of Cheech and Chong thrown in there. But they kind of predate all of them, or at least go back as far as, as all those acts. And they're wonderful. And David was a pleasure to talk to. He talks about his over 60 years, believe it or not, in radio. He talks about uh, being one of the voices of uh, the voice of Cornelius in A Bug's Life, as well as, as so much more. It was just such a great chat. I can't wait to share that one with you. We've also got from the archives of uh, my personal archives of interviews I've done in the past. I've got David Prowse, uh, the now late great David Prowse, who sadly we lost this week, uh, just after last week's show, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, I spoke to him at London Film and Comic Con in 2016, so uh, quite a few years back uh, now. And uh, before that, though, we're going to be welcoming a friend of mine, Michelle Saul. And uh, the reason why we're going to be talking to her is she's an NHS nurse. And I thought, especially in these times of COVID, what better time to talk to an NHS nurse? And especially like we have just had it announced that uh, the UK has become the first country to authorise use of uh, the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. So, uh, you know, we're going to start having people protected from this fucking awful disease. And like some people have said, it's like, oh, yeah, but it'll be a while before everything returns to normal. Of course it will be. Of course it's going to be such an undertaking just to get enough people to have this vaccine. But I just think of people like my mum and uh, everyone's loved ones who are of a certain age, who can now start being protected from this. All the NHS workers and frontline workers all around the world who hopefully can start being protected from this evil disease. And that just does my heart good. So uh, good times. Uh, And uh, we're going to be welcoming Michelle in just a bit. First of all, we're going to have a They Might Be Giants double to launch the show today. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. But before that, 
just to let you know, the big question of the week. Now, just a, in a couple of days, on Saturday, 5th of December, it's going to be my 42nd birthday. Yes, believe it or not, this young voice is 42 in just a couple of days. And of course, what's special about that birthday is that it's the answer to life, the universe and everything. If you're a Douglas Adams fan, you'll know that. But apart from that, 42 isn't much good. But but what we're going to do as our big question of the week is how have you celebrated during lockdown? Now, we've already had a slew of wonderful answers. Uh, if you've had some celebration, if you just want to shout it out or if you want to tell us about how you celebrated in COVID times, please write to us either uh, at Dr. Squee on Twitter or Instagram or go to the Facebook page uh, for the Dr. Squee show page. And we've also got an a, uh, email, Dr. Squee at thebear.live. Wow, I remembered all those, even with my befuddled brain. So let's go over to that. Uh, they might be Giants Double now, though, starting off with Birdhouse in Your Soul. Hi, I'm Dr. Squee, and you're listening to The Bear. Rawr. Okay. Hello, we're sorry about that silence. We had a bit of a problem with the deck there, but uh, that was Dr. Worm by They Might Be Giants, and uh, before that, Birdhouse in, a, in Your Soul. Uh, I'm now here with one of the fantastic NHS nurses. Now, whereas some people uh, might be working on the front, front lines of COVID, she's very much taking up the rear in colonoscopy. Please welcome to the Dr. Squee Show, Michelle Sewell. Oh, thank you, Dr. Squee. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, th- sorry, we have actually been talking for a minute, but uh, I didn't realise we yeah. had a slight issue with the deck. I would also apologise for the slight remix on Dr. Worm there. <laughs> I might have accidentally le- lent on the wrong button and rewound it just a little bit. Um, so what, what the uh, good listeners didn't hear there is um, that you've actually just been recovering from COVID yourself. And um, I mean, you know, you're telling me it's not COVID of the rear, but, you know, (laughs) as I understand it, COVID of the rear is a lot like ordinary corona, but uh, it's the other people who wish that they lost their sense of smell. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure that's an actual diagnosed condition, though. Well, I don't know, Michelle, where do they (laughs) stick the swab? That's all I'm asking. Well... I can tell you they only swabbed my nose and my mouth, so I can't okay. confirm that I have COVID of the rear. Okay, I'll take your word for it, but um, <laughs> okay, right. So <laughs> how are you doing after your ordeal with COVID? Yeah, not too bad, actually. I think I've been very lucky. My my symptoms were mild. The worst thing I had was losing my taste and my smell for about a week. Yeah. That really was the worst thing. I mean, it's... Uh... You know, this does kind of show you, even though, you know, you were quick to point out to me, it's like you're not working on the front lines of COVID. But Mm. anyone in the NHS who's going into the hospitals is taking, you know, their health into their own hands. There there is sort of something that you guys are doing that the rest of us, you know, when everyone else was in lockdown, you were going into the heart of where germs do lie, no matter which way you look at it. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's very difficult because we have to work very close together and you know we're always being told you have to maintain this distance and we have our masks on and we're very good at our hand washing and hand sanitizing but we're so close to each other you know I can't be doing my job if there's a distance between us all so you know we're doing our best but it's bound to get around isn't it it's bound to be spread around and you're walking around a hospital touching surfaces and you don't know who who's touched it before you you know it's difficult it's difficult not to get it 
Yeah, and at a time when uh, the NHS has already spread so thin, just anyone taking time off it, you know, obviously no one would begrudge you being ill and having to take some time for yourself. But I know that, you know, from from you and and other friends of mine, uh, the feeling you get of kind of worry for all your colleagues when that happens, of, you know, the, the extra stress put on them. Definitely, and one of the things that's really been concerning me over this last week is when we have... You know, members of staff that are higher risk than I am. And when we last had a lockdown, they were all sent home and told they were too high risk, you know, to be in our environment. But at the moment, they're being told, no, it's fine. You can carry on, get back to work. They haven't sent anybody home to isolate over this last lockdown. You know, now we're at a point where some of us, you know, in the unit have, have got COVID. So it's a concern for your, your colleagues, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, I know something which both here in Southampton as well as all over the country, there is a desperate shortage of things like PPE. How have you managed that? Mm. Well, that's been interesting. Um, we had like, the, the proper PPE, PPE that we um, we kind of keep. We got through that in, I think, the first couple of weeks of the first lockdown. And we had all this other PPE that was delivered to us. And I'm trying to remember where it was made. It's all kind of like handmade stuff. Um, like the gowns that we have to wear. And I think, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was a mattress company that have made them, uh, which is just absolutely lovely. There are people out there kind of making stuff for the NHS for us, yeah. but they were bloody awful to work in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness, so hot, so uncomfortable. And because they want them to fit everyone, they're absolutely massive. And I'm a short person, as you know. No. So the, <laughs> I am, believe it or not. <laughs> so it... It was just way, way too big and, and too hot. But we just had absolutely tons of the stuff delivered to us. So we, that's what we were wearing through most of the lockdown. The other thing is, like, people talk about the kind of shortages of finance for the NHS. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get these politicians going on TV and saying how they've kind of just poured loads of money, more money into the NHS. Do you see the results of that when they when you hear them talking about that? Do, does it ever get easier? Like, you know, do you hear, oh, we've just released all this money for the NHS. Do, does Do you see the results of that in any time, no. in any real time? No. Every time I hear that, I think I'd like to see where it goes. Um, wherever I've kind of worked in the hospital at the time, I can't say I've ever really seen the benefit of it. And with all this um, PPE, we're being told, you know, we're being told, oh, we've got plenty of PPE. And, you know, I go around other areas of the hospital as well. Sometimes I have to go to intensive care. Sometimes I have to go to theatres to um, do procedures. And they were all wearing the same PPE as us in endoscopy. So whether it was just that we had so much of this other PPE delivered to us that they just wanted to get through it all before we moved on to the nicer, proper PPE, I don't know. But I wasn't seeing anywhere in the hospital, you know, that was wearing our standard PPE. So I don't know where it was all going. I mean, the one thing which uh, I was actually watching, this sounds a bit funny, but I was watching Grey's Anatomy the other day. And uh, one thing I was particularly struck by, I don't know why, like, you know, because this happens on all these shows every season, but uh, they showed them dealing particularly with coronavirus now. And uh, they showed, like, at any stress, the first thing they do is, you know, so, like, in one 
scene in this first episode of the series they show them kind of accidentally getting sent loads of kind of shoe coverings as opposed to other ppe and like yeah. the guy goes nuts and just starts throwing stuff around and kicking it and like just throwing a paddy and then you get another scene where um gray the titular gray is there in the um stock room and she gets really upset so she tears down shelves and she's throwing stuff all over the place now, the thing is, like, I understand. I get it. Like, it's dramatic tension. You've got to show that in some sort of, like, uh, external way as opposed to internalising it for drama purposes. But I just thought it's like, you know, people actually doing these jobs, you don't get to do that. You don't get to shout at people of the world or get upset at patients like they do in these TV shows. How do you cope with that day-to-day stress, like, of, of being an NH nurse, you know, in, in hospitals at the moment? Um... I think we're very good at moaning when we're not around the patients. <laughs> <laughs> so whether that's in the break room or when we get home and kind of let loose, and, you know, our poor partners probably hear a fair bit of moaning from us. But you you just have to kind of keep it into yourself at the time and just find, find a better time to release some of that frustration. Sometimes just a glass of wine at the end of your shift, not when you get home. Not, not in the break room, um, you know, just... Not that they <laughs> know of anyway. <laughs> no, not that they know of. They don't know what's in my water bottle. It's water. <laughs> well, water, it's vodka, water. same difference. It's clear liquids. <laughs> uh, yeah, you just have to find, like, ways to relax yourself after a shift sometimes. And Hey, look, um, what you and Gary get up to, I don't need to hear. That's her husband, <laughs> by the way, for, for dear listeners. Um, but yeah, it's it's like just so many things on these shows. Again, it's all good drama. I appreciate it's good TV. But uh, you see the way that they talk back to their um, superiors sometimes because they get stressed. Like just any one of those things that they say, I could only imagine would be instant dismissal for you guys. <laughs> yeah, I can't say I've ever um, seen that happen. Sometimes you'd like to, but... <laughs> I won't ask you for examples of that for your, for your own job safety. No, I'm back to work tomorrow. I've got to be good. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, tomorrow's your first day back to work. And first day since they've announced the Pfizer vaccine yes, is being yes. approved for the UK. Uh, what's the feeling amongst you? And I'm sure you've been in contact with your friends since you've heard that news, your friends mm. working in the hospital. Yeah, I think um, the majority of people are happy about it. But there's always going to be some people. We have some people that, you know, won't even get the flu vaccine every year. So uh, there might be a little bit of resistance to it. But I think overall, the majority of the people, you know, that I work with are going to be happy to have it. You know, we all want this to, well, I want to say go away. It's going to be a while, isn't it? But Yeah. I mean, I was saying gonna... at the top of the show, I mean, it's just, just to me, I just think with this being released now to some people, it is the NHS frontline workers and uh, the elderly yeah. who are going and the most vulnerable in our society who are going to get this first and yeah. that just fills me with joy like you know i can handle a few more months of you know or even six months however long it is of kind of hardship if i know those people who are most vulnerable are going to get the help they need to to be with us when we next celebrate christmas yeah definitely that's it i mean this is one christmas isn't it out of you know all the christmases that we're going to have I think we all need to be a little bit sensible this year, but I do appreciate it's hard, especially when you've got family that you've, you've barely seen this year. You know, Christmas is such a special time for family, so it's, it's going to be difficult. But, well, if only people could um, social distance just for a little bit longer. I think, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel now with this vaccine. Yeah, and what would you say to people who still sort of deny that either COVID exists or that it's as bad as it seems? 
what would you say to those people like and and you know we try and come from position of kindness on this show so like you know we, we understand these people have maybe been sold what they call a bill of goods on the internet they've maybe been yeah. sold kind of uh, lies but uh, what would you say as someone who's experienced it and seen it in such volume oh goodness i would like to say you know go and spend some time in intensive care and see what it's like to actually care for these patients obviously I, you can't just wander in but actually there has been a program i think on tv about surviving covid i didn't get to watch that but i mean hopefully that you know might be a bit of an insight but I've spoken to um, people that have worked in intensive care um, throughout, you know, this COVID, and you know, just the stories that I've heard, and you know, this anaesthetist was telling me about this. They had to put together these what they called proning teams. You might have heard proning on the news. Um, Sounds like something nurse... you do in colonoscopy. There, <laughs> well, you know, we have to prone this patient now. It's kind of like nursing on on the stomach. It's to oh. help with the breathing, but to but every couple of hours you have to change the patient's position and because there are so many wires and things that they're connected to it takes at least five people half an hour to turn one patient jesus and you think and then they're just moving from one patient to another patient to another patient that's all they're doing all day and you think wow i mean that kind of gives you some kind of insight into just how difficult it has been for them to to nurse these patients with covid yeah, yeah, and there's people who are saying that they've had it kind of up to six months ago and they're still yeah. unable to reach the top end of their breathing. You know, yeah. It's just, yeah, I I don't... It's like everyone seems to need to know someone who's got this or had this. Well, I, I know yeah. people who've had this. I know people... I did know people who died from this. Yeah. You know, it, it's real people, you know. It's, I don't know what more to tell you. Just please believe it, you know. Um yeah. Okay, Michelle, uh, one thing I did want to quickly talk to you before we let you go is uh, you, like me, are a vegan, uh, of a bit more experience than me. In fact, I'm starting to think that you're slowly kind of like infecting me, like not with the COVID, but like, you know, (laughs) I wasn't a vegan when I first knew you. I I wasn't working for the NHS, which I now work for part time as well. So uh, I'm just wondering what you're pulling here. But uh, but regardless of that. You want I'll the, bring a uniform over. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not ready for the uniform yet. I'm only working on the phones, but there we go. Uh, so, Michelle, as a vegan who's kind of working for the NHS, something which you told me which I found kind of fascinating is that the NHS now recommends for heart pa- disease patients to go on a vegan diet. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's not something I know a huge amount about. I don't work in, like, cardiology or anything. But, um, yeah, and um, there's quite a few, like, vegan doctors that I follow, and I find most of them are cardiologists as well. Um, it's just you, it's difficult to deny the science, really. I, mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of science out there that shows that like a, a good, healthy, plant-based diet is really good for your heart. It has actually been shown to reverse heart disease in some patients as well. Um, and I think, you know, someone that we both like, um, Kevin Smith, obviously, he had yep. a heart attack, and he went to um, plant-based doctors um, to help you know, change his lifestyle as well. And it's, you know, it's done wonders for him. Yeah, I'd like to know a little bit more actually about what the NHS is is recommending. I'll have to look into it a little bit more, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things whereby, like, I'm not trying to convert anyone, but it's like when people think they can't do it because it isn't healthy for you or you mm. can't get enough protein, which is just not true. Like, you know, those vegetables contain the protein which then goes into the animals which you then 
get yeah. second hand. It's but anyway, like uh, again, we're not trying to convert anyone. Just just the facts of it. That's all. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, Michelle, uh, just very quickly, I feel like seeing as we're both here, we should plug uh, Due South by Southeast. What pray tell is this Due South by Southeast of which I speak? It's a bit of fun, really, isn't it? We we like it. We have a, a podcast uh, where we watch a, an episode of Due South. Um, I'm the one who takes the notes. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> and then we just kind of dissect it, don't we? We kind of go through it bit by bit, talking about um, the programme. And we normally drink a little bit of rum. And then a little um, bit more rum and then a copious amount of rum. <laughs> We've been known to get a little bit squiffy during our podcasts. Well, me, me and Nicola, who also joins us, uh, calls them, call them Michelle measures of rum. <laughs> But but the only thing which has dropped that charade a bit is because we've been doing online due to obvious reasons recently. And uh, yeah, the, the measures have not got smaller. <laughs> you can't always blame me now. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, that spoils all the fun of blaming oh, Michelle. I'll, I'll blame you anyway. It's easier. Uh, okay. <laughs> so uh, please do look out the Jube South by Southeast podcast, uh, wherever you get your podcast from, as well as the Dr. Squeeze show, of course. Michelle, thank you so much, not only for being here tonight, for being uh, my best friend and for being a wonderful friend and for uh, helping the NHS and uh, just being there for so many people. Oh, well, thank you. And I hope you get better soon. Thank you very much. I'm just like, oh, my head's just a bit swimmy. As long as my voice can hold out for another like hour and a half, we're good. But uh, Michelle, we're going to now play a track for uh, your dear Gary, I believe. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was trying to find a song for him. Yes, we're going to go for an ill song, aren't we? Uh, feeling Fresh. This is uh, Fresh Feeling, close enough. Oh, sorry, fresh feeling. <laughs> By oh, the Eels. Here we so go. Close. Getting kinda used to being someone you love. Someone you loved, Lewis Capaldi. And uh, we're gonna, in a minute, play my interview, which I did back in 2016 with David Prowse. But uh, first of all, we're gonna go to our big question of the week. This is all about celebrations in lockdown. So, Ali Waitson said that she missed seeing her friends for her birthday, but her husband and dogs made it as special as it could be, which is wonderful. Like, we want the people around us to make us feel better about the people who can't be around us right now. My friend James King, who was the guest last week from the Retrek podcast, please check that one out. He said, if you have a birthday in lockdown, does it count? I'm still 38, I think. I'm not sure about that, James, but he said... For his birthday, I usually he usually goes to the cinema, then to the pub, so needs to make a few changes this year. He tried to create the experience as best he could by having a massive Zoom meeting with his friends. We all agreed to meet at a certain time and watch Star Wars. Thanks to stream services, we were able to start the film at the same time and through Zoom chat uh, have a conversation as it was playing in the background. I understand that many of the stream services now have an option to hold watch parties, but I feel like we were pioneers. Plus, we've got to have a drink and not have to worry about staggering home. It was actually a really fun experience, but it doesn't mean we won't be having a proper knees up next year. Damn right we will, James. And I was actually very pleased to be part of that um, film watching experience uh, with the classic Star Wars. And, you know, fits into our theme with David Prowse, which we're going to hear from in a minute. Regina Kurim says, said, I only invited my closest friend and hopes there's a chance to make up for it next year. Well, as we were saying earlier with Michelle there, I do believe if we all stick to the rules this year, we can have a big celebration next year. We've got a few others, but we'll play those uh, or read those out for you in a bit. 
Now I want to get on to David Prowse. Now, uh, we did sadly lose Darth Vader himself, David Prowse, this week. And I've just gathered a few stories which people have shared, friends of mine on Facebook, uh, regarding David. So first of all, there's James Precious. He said, David was the guest of honour at a two-day convention, Strange New Worlds, in Worthing in 2011. As I was doing front of house and A&R, I got to talk with lots, talk to him for lots of it. Got on like a house on fire and he told me some wonderful tales. Two particular memories stand out. Firstly, Dave cheerfully singing with us the George Lucas song to the Star Wars tune. Star Wars made me a fortune, paid off the mortgage, brought me a car. The second, after his signings, I apologise for my singing in advance. Well, or after the fact. On each day towards the end, he got up on his crutches and went around chatting to other storeholders and exhibitors. Dave was a genuinely nice man with lots of warmth, modesty and real interest in other people. Alex and I met him several other shows afterwards and he'd call us over by name for a catch up and a chat. Nicest celebrity or star I've ever met or worked with. It blows my mind that having seen Star Wars as a star-struck 11-year-old back in 20 or oh, sorry 1977 I end up working with that nice Mr. Vader. And my other friend, uh, Simon Rago, put, My fondest memory of him, uh, him offering my daughter one of his blueberries at Bournemouth Comic Con. She then sat on his knee and he shared the rest with her. He was amazing. He also signed my droid, which was really cool. So that was the droid he was looking for, apparently. Now, I've got a memory of uh, meeting David. And it isn't from the interview, which I'm about to play for you. But it's actually at uh, CovCon, Coventry Comic Con which I uh, regularly host pounds at. Now, excuse me, just taking a drink to keep my voice going. Now, uh, David was there and he was on crutches, as mentioned in the other story there, which he, he was on for quite a number of years with uh, some back issues. And he was walking in and I stood there and I opened the door for him. And he went to walk through. And unfortunately, one of his crutches didn't land right and he lost his footing and he fell. And the thing was, I was kind of parallel to him. And when you're parallel to someone, uh, as someone who used to be a carer, uh, as I am, I know that you can't assist someone from the side. If you grab hold of them, you can actually jar them worse and, and cause them to have a worse injury than them just falling. Luckily, there was a couple of people in front of him, so they stepped forward and they kind of uh, caught caught him and, and made sure he didn't fall. And I felt a bit useless because I was standing there, unable to help my dear hero here. But they helped him up and everyone was going, oh, are you okay, David? Like, you're right. Do you need to sit down and everything? And he looked so embarrassed and he said, look, I'm okay. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. He was very gracious about it, but you could tell the man was a little bit embarrassed. So I knew exactly how to help him at this stage. I said, look, David, I'm sorry, but you're not fooling me. He said, what? More than a little grouchy sounding in me. He said, I said, look, David, I know, obviously, Darth Vader has to make a big entrance. You're just making sure everyone knows Vader's in the house by making a big entrance here. He gave a big giggle and he walked through and um, I like to think I'd given a little bit of dignity back to my hero in a tough moment. Small payment back for all the hours of entertainment he gave me with Star Wars. Uh, so that's such a treasured memory of being able to restore a bit of dignity to my hero there. And I'm just so sorry we lost him this week. But I'm going to now play for you my interview with David Prowse back in uh, 2016, this is from London Film and Comic Con. I would apologise, the sound quality isn't great on this. This was, it was in a very packed uh, convention hall. I'm trying to clean it up as best I can, but a couple of minutes, a couple of times, David's voice gets a bit quiet on the tape. But hopefully, you can enjoy this. Uh, here is David Prowse, the late great David Prowse, now from 2016. 
When you were uh, filming Star Wars, what was the first moment after it came out that you really realised that this was something bigger than maybe you'd expected? Uh, I think it was when when, when I was, you know, went to went to see the movie in in, in the cinema and and to see the queues outside. Yeah, people queuing outside to get in to see it. Yeah. I think that was what, what sort of moved me. You know, really thought I thought. I thought I, 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 I think I've done something good here. Because <laughs> then it was a real old-fashioned uh, blockbuster. It would go oh, yeah, around the block. Yeah, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and what was your kind of like uh, favorite? Have you got a favorite scene or a favorite moment from the films? Um, not really. No, no. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed. I mean, Star Wars was, a, was an interesting movie you know, to, to work on, and uh, it was it was nice, you know, working with Lucas. Um, it was, well, it was nice. It was nice to actually on, on, on each each of the, the movies were interesting to work on. You know, working with different directors and things like that. You know. And uh, we, we filmed we filmed the L Street Studios at the Forum Wood. And uh, it was it was it was interesting because you know you uh, you, you, know, you, 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 you 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 talk. To everybody that was involved in the movie, yeah. you could, you know, you talk to George Lucas, you could talk to you know, the different actors, it was just a, a, a very pleasant time. But no, nobody, nobody at the time realised just how you know what we were into. It. No. No, no, nobody had the faintest idea you know, how big it was going to become. And uh, how about like, uh, do, do you ever watch any of the prequels or the sequels, or is it kind of something in your past? Well, I've seen, I've obviously seen, you know, I saw, I've, I've, I've seen, the, I've seen you know, Star Wars Empire Jedi. That was the first three. Yeah. Um, and I, have, I, 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 I didn't like, I didn't like the, the I didn't like the fourth one. That's the only one I saw. I, saw, I, saw. I, was, I wasn't very impressed with it. I, I, I think it was just me personally thinking that there wasn't enough action. Yeah. I, felt, I just felt too it, much green screen. It needed more action. You know, where, whereas the, the three that I was involved in, there were plenty, there were, there were plenty going on. Um, but in the later ones, I, I just didn't feel that they were uh, very exciting. Yeah, yeah. And just finally, uh, going to these comic cons and everything. Is there anything for you, anyone for you, who you particularly have enjoyed meeting at these events, or anyone who you are a fan of? Well, I, I, it's, 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 conventions are, are really interesting for me because, as I said, because you, you meet so many different personalities that you would not, not normally come across. You know, like for instance, you've got, you know, you've got a couple of boxes over there. And, you know, a couple of boxes here that I, I've admired for years and years and years. Yeah. And there they are, sat opposite me, like, you know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I, think I, I really do enjoy, you know, going to conventions and meeting people and, and, and you know, and, and being in a position where you can sit down and talk to them, you know. So it's a, it's a, a great fun for me you know, to do. Well, thank I you love very it. Much for I thoroughly enjoy it. Well, thank you very much for sparing some time. Oh, no, very nice. Nice talking to you. Yeah, they're great. Thank you. That was the late, great David Prowse. And uh, one thing which I did cut off the beginning of that interview, when I first went up to him, I thought, right, I'm going to be clever about this. He will get asked about Star Wars all the time. I'm going to ask him about the classic Doctor Who episode with John Pertwee that was in. So I came up to him very proudly with my microphone and said, so David, look, one thing I'm sure you get asked about a lot less is uh, your work on Doctor Who when you played the Minotaur opposite John Pertwee. 
do you remember anything about that? And he said, no, I'm afraid I don't. That was ages ago, you know. And just nothing. He just remembered nothing about it. So very quickly, I went straight onto the Star Wars talk. And he was absolutely lovely. He is genuinely, or was genuinely, one of those uh, charming people. One of those heroes who lives up to exactly who you'd hope they would be. And um, maybe uh, I've, I've brought this up as a kind of segue, not on purpose, but uh, from uh, him not remembering Doctor Who to Nickelback, how do you remind me? And right after that, we're going to go into my interview with Firesign Theatre's David Osman. But here is Nickelback. Never made it as a wise man. I couldn't cut it as a poor man's theme. Nickelback, how you remind me. We're about to go into my interview with uh, David Osman, but before we do, uh, just a few more of your lockdown celebration stories. So Zach Mann has written, I'm hoping my sons and their four Californian cousins can get together next holiday season since they're young millennials. I would like to tell one of them who has great grand who has grandnieces that she who must be obeyed and obeyed and I can play with our, your children so you can go to the guest room and take a nap. How lovely. And for Thanksgiving, we only had friends and family who are who are living caregivers who spend their days off with us and a brief visit from my wife's sister. We zoomed my elderly son and his girlfriend. I don't think it would affect me too much with my birthday as uh, I usually have a meal in the restaurant and instead it'll be a takeout. Thank you very much for that, Zach. And from Twitter, we've got uh, the Derek Duval show. I had a milestone birthday with no celebration. I'm sorry to hear that. I, I hope everyone is able to celebrate in some fashion, if indeed you do celebrate your birthday and your special occasions. Uh, so uh, just a couple of stories from me. So uh, we had my stepdaughter Amy got married. So congratulations to her. We had a wonderful day. And I was chosen as one of the people to go up and sign the register, which was quite an honour for me. And I remember when I went up, uh, I went like there was some hand sanitizer there. So like everything was so careful. Uh, she couldn't even be walked down the aisle due to the restrictions. And I went up there and I sprayed the hand sanitizer, register on my hand pushed down the pump and nothing came out and I sort of like laughed to the registrar and pressed it again and suddenly this jet of hand sanitizer went all over not only my hand it sort of skimmed my hand and went all over my suit so I had to sort of like just bluff it out as if it'd gone on my hands and quickly go and sign the register and clean myself off uh, and then I got engaged to my dear Nicola um, so that's one of my proudest but those are my two proudest moments of this year it's it's been a very trying year but there has been some beauty in the darkness and that's what this kind of question of the week's all about but now we're going to go to my interview with david osman talk about highlights of the year i've been so lucky this year i started off this year by interviewing uh tim brooke taylor the uh member of the goodies as well as a great comedian in his own right he was on i'm sorry having a clue since the beginning of that radio show um, such a legend of radio and broadcasting in this country. And now I've interviewed David Osman. For anyone who doesn't know, as I say, he's, he's had 60 years in radio, which is just incredible. It, over 60 years, in fact. Firesign Theatre uh, are such an amazing and funny group. And he talks here about uh, their album, which has just been released in a special edition vinyl with uh, loads of extra material on it. And you can buy that now. It's a limited run pressing. So uh, go to Amazon or FiresignTheatre.com to buy that right now. And he was just such a gent. He talked about being in Bugs Life as well. 
um, it was just a wonderful time and uh, what a legend to speak to. I feel like I've learned a lot just by being in his presence during this conversation, which took place just after Thanksgiving from America. So please enjoy uh, this interview with David Osman from Fireside Theatre. And it's sandwiched, if you will, between two sketches from Fireside. So please enjoy that. Now over to that. It's all bluff from top to bottom. Just Here's Pat Bluff, former yeah. governor of the state of Arizona, who's with us on our show, Policemen Meet the Nation. Yeah, right? just uh, just to me, uh, studying it, it looks like the whole system of life uh, is bluff. A man just bluffs himself out of the cradle onto the floor. He just bluffs his legs into carrying him around when he gets sick of crawling, and he gets to it and yeps and bluffs his mama into carrying him. Hey, Sam, can I ask you a question? Yeah. What does that mean, what you just said? Uh, I didn't understand a word of it. It's poetic. But, uh, I worked it all out you did, over uh, 65 years. That's, that's a distillation. Oh, bluff. <laughs> that's a distillation just, of 65 years of philosophy, Sam. Ain't no difference, young nor old. We just start right in to bluff somebody from the first, if it's only to yep when we're brought into the world as if we hated it and was kicking to get out of it quick. Sam, look at that fellow over there, right? <laughs> yeah, look, yeah, he's, he's just court. gotten to court, right? right? Yeah, hi, look, Sam, look at him. Ain't that the biggest bluff of all? Well, I think he gets, you know, he gets right along some female girl and he pitches her some yawns and some yams about himself yeah. such a thing as the blush of the shame of the features of George Washington. Yeah, he makes her believe he's just what every fella of sense knows he ain't. And she, bluffing herself like mad, bluffs herself into believing she believes that he believes. She believes what nobody else believes about him. That, she, that he's filling her up with truth, see? Now I understand what you're yeah, saying, sure. Sam. Now you're talking university talk. Yeah, think about when they have kids, then. The oh. kids come along, right? And he's got to bluff harder than ever. What, 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 what kiddies take a heap of bluffing, they Sam. Do. They hey, sure do. Let's say you got six of them. You have to I bluff do. six times as hard then. I know. It drains every ounce of life force out of my body. You have to buff their shoes, That's make right. sure they're shining. Shine their heads so the planes will see them and not land on them. That's I had right. a plane land on two of my sons yesterday. You did, eh? <laughs> Makes me laugh, too. I saw it. Well, <laughs> they're just plane kids. Yeah, that's right. Passing plane came right by, took the top, and went... Go ahead. Anyway, you go on like this, L Charlie. Like I've been going on. Like right. you've been going on <coughs> till death gets oh, around. Me. See? That's all right. Sick. Coughing. Sick and coughing. <coughs> coughing is the word. Right. You can't bluff death, which is the reason you got to get off the earth. When you fix that way, other folks come along and bluff you, see? What about your friend Sam? Your friends yeah. go around and tell you that they're, you know, they heap of sorry. And yeah, the kids yeah. come and they make you feel like you've treated them bully and yeah, acted yeah. sugar and square with them. The gal you bluffed in the mirror, she gets around and snivels. Yeah, the doctor yeah. bluffs, the preacher bluffs, yeah. the president bluffs, the schnifter bluffs. Yeah. And death gets a drop on you. Yeah, yeah. You, go, you right go right down, down and out. Right down yeah. and out. Sunk. Everything's bluffed, sir, till you get up again the muzzle of a gun like this. Oh. Then your thumbs get up quick. And you bluff yourself that bluff is one of them things you'd hate like poison to hand out to a blind mule, whatever that means. Yeah, right. But you agree with me, don't you? Because I got a gun on you. You got a finger on me. I respect a finger more than I, f I respect a gun. That's the point. Uh, you could stick my eye out with that, but I've I'm never seen anybody hurt with a gun. you with this sharp fingernail. Yeah, with a heavy ring on it, too. All so bluff. I really respect the heavy All ring finger. Bluff. Yeah, right. That's the ring yeah. of doom, though. I know that. I know that. You're Six bluffing. You're eight. bluffing. My guest tonight has a career as a writer and performer extending 60 years back to the earliest days of FM and non-commercial radio through the rock and roll LP and touring era and continues in theatre productions, memoirs and historical mystery novels. He's best known as the founding member of the four-man Firesign Theatre with more than 20 comedy albums. Please welcome to the Dog the Squee Show, David Osman. Hey! David Ah, there I am, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much, Doc. 
I mean, it's just, it's it's quite humbling to be welcoming someone who was doing radio 60 years ago. Like, does it feel like that for you? Um, well, I'll tell you, 60 years ago, really, when I started in radio, it was in New York City. Couldn't, couldn't have been better, but it was on one of the very earliest FM radio stations in America. Um, probably there'd only been FM signals out there that you could get for only maybe five or at the most 10 years. So, um, and I'll, I'll tell you a little story about, about being on FM then. I was the, um, the left-hand side of the first stereo broadcast in New York City. You had to have two FM radios. Now, you had to get an FM radio, okay? And they had to be set side by side. So WBAI was on the left, and WRVR, the Riverside <coughs> Church radio station, was on the other side, and you turned them both on, and you got stereo. So that's how long ago it it, it was in, in radio. Almost everything except, uh, you know, the uh, um, uh, well, let's see. Did did we do any of those Edison cylinders? No, I think we were a little late for the Edison. <laughs> That's the thing. When when like you think back to the early days of FM radio, it kind of just seems so far ago. But like, yeah, really, the '60s doesn't sound that far, really, in relative terms. Well, by the time the '60s rolled around for the Fireside Theater, which we started on FM radio, by that time. Uh, let's, I'm in Los Angeles and Los Angeles has a lot of AM, a lot of top 40 radio, a lot of news, a lot of sports. It doesn't have a lot of culture on the air. And, you know, and Los Angeles in the 1960s wasn't a very culture heavy town. There was movies, uh, but there wasn't much theater there. People toured through town, but it wasn't wasn't a big cultural headquarters. So on KPFK, when I was then working in the early 60s, we were about the only radio outlet. If you'd written a book or if you had a play running somewhere, you could call up the station and say, will you interview us? We've got We're doing this show. He said, well, sure, of course. Glad to do it. And uh, uh, so it became like a cultural hub. For, for Los Angeles uh, on FM, then there was a moment when FM really caught on. And um, let's say this is about the, about the Beatles time, about the time the Beatles exploded in America, mid-60s, why radio began to change to accommodate a new kind of music and a new kind of audience, which is even more important. And that audience was young and sure they were listening to the dance tunes on chop on top 40. And I, maybe they caught some news headlines. I don't know, maybe the sports, but what they wanted to listen to was everything that was suddenly being recorded out there. And yeah. it was a very rich time. And so then what happened to radio? Suddenly you had a 20 minute cut. Suddenly you had what we used to call a raga, you know, uh, an LP side. And uh, where are you going to play those? You know, what were you going to do with that audience who wanted to hear the whole doors, not just a six minute version or a three minute version. I want to hear the whole cut. So radio had uh, underwent a change at that time, both and the FM side uh, affected AM radio in Los Angeles. And uh, the four of us in the Firestein Theater were very lucky to trail along this um, progress 
in radio and, <clears throat> and be on during maybe the five years that were the most free and where we could really get away with the most that we could get away on the air. And that, that, that's, we call that the dear friends time as we were doing a show called dear friends and then let's eat. And uh, I don't know if I'd be here if we didn't have a new LP, double LP set out, which I'm going to pitch because it's so extraordinary to have an LP album out. It's up in the corner of the screen right now for everyone to see. There it is. I see it in the corner of the screen. Dope humor of the 70s. Now I have to tell you, it is really something to have written the commercial for this album 50 years before it actually came out. (laughs) Are you following me there, Doc? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that what I'm really kind of struck by, both with your stories about uh, the beginnings of FM radio and with Firesign Theatre's early works, is it it seems like that was a great space for creativity, for like, you know, if if no one, I I think there were so many people who kind of like doubt any new technology that people who do go into it can get away with so much stuff. Did it feel like that at the time? Well, there were two, two things that happened to us. Once... One, the radio, which we knew, uh, we'd all been in radio. I'd been in radio for half a dozen years before uh, Firesign. Uh, both Phil, both of the Phils, Phil Austin and Phil Proctor, had, had had radio experience as well as television experience as kids. And when Peter Bergman arrived in Los Angeles and uh, developed his show, which is called Radio Free Oz, he was like a natural. He was completely a natural. So well, when um, we we moved beyond radio then to put radio on records, that was the big jump. And along with our records over those years, like radio, the technology changed. So our first album, Waiting for the Electrician or Someone Like Him, was produced exactly like Sgt. Pepper. Four tracks, four Am- Ampex tracks. And if you want to make another track, you just keep dubbing it down, mixing it, dubbing it down. It was complicated to get a multi-layered album. And we really listened to and admired the, the, the studio technique that produced that album. It was really amazing. Also, that all the tracks ran into each other, that you didn't have to make breaks between your jokes. All of that was really quite important. So the next record that we did, it was eight track. The next one, 16 track. And then beyond that, you know, there was no end of tracks. Now, of course, those those 20 foot long multi-track mixing boards, where are they? You know, they're in the dumpster. I don't know where they are anymore. And it, it strikes me that something about those, the, the very first ones where you did have to keep mixing it down, it speaks to something of like, uh, you know, if you listen to a Feinstein Theatre album, it feels just like a wonderful, chaotic thing. But like to be that chaotic, sometimes you have to be very organized. Was that the case? I think always we did two things. We would um, really wrestle over a script, line by line, scene by scene, character by character. Uh, one of us would bring in a funny commercial. And then the other three would rewrite it. You know what I mean? It was that kind of procedure yeah. in the writing session. Firesign Theater existed when it wrote. And it took what it wrote then into the studio and essentially improvised. 
created characters and went through the same process that you might go through if you were if you had, were lucky enough to have a Broadway play and it opens in Boston and it's a miserable failure and so you rewrite the third act you know well the same kind of thing would happen to us in the studio we'd have these great writing ideas and then it wouldn't go there or the characters wouldn't work or so we'd rewrite or just improvise in the studio. The album that's up there in the corner, uh, <clears throat> Dope Humor of the 70s, which is a radio album, is almost entirely improvised or improvised around material because we would use the radio uh, shows to develop stuff, ideas, characters, uh, you know, commercials, just stuff because we were doing them, it was an hour a week. Um, for 12 weeks, we had this, you know, assignment that we had to go through. And that was always used, we always used the radio show to develop material that would then be developed, we thought, into an album. It's like uh, uh, Agatha Christie using her short stories to make them into novels. Uh, Raymond Chandler did the same thing. He'd write a wonderful short story and then another one, and he'd put them together so you never like want any material to go to waste yeah there was a feeling when i was listening back to it in pre preparation for the interview i love the fact that it's kind of a mixture of a few things like if you if you really don't prepare at all then that can kind of lead someone wrong so that i could feel there was kind of like some preparation behind it then you've got the fact that uh, you would be kind of like laughing to each other so you could get that feeling of enjoyment, but it never got to the point where it did it interfered with the work. And you could just tell those moments where someone throws in the line the other one isn't expecting and there's just this glorious kind of, everyone just starts giggling, but you, it doesn't detract. Like all that balance seems really important to me to provide the kind of product which we hear here. No, I think you're right about that. And that takes me back to old radio, including the Goons show on the BBC, where the funniest moments were the moments where they would break each other up. Yeah. The, the three actors would just, somebody would say something or a sound effect would happen or they'd ad lib and they just go up. And that happened on, on all American uh, classic comedy shows as well. If Jack Benny could break up Bob Hope, he'd do it. You know, I mean, that's what they were in it for. And uh, the the four of us in Firesun, uh, in the same way, uh, really enjoyed those moments where you could throw in something. Maybe it was a sound effect. There's a, a, well, there's a cut called The Chinchilla Show. And The Chinchilla Show is based on a script, but it's completely improvised. And I was the chinchilla because I had a noisy, a squeaky pickle. And the squeaky pickle became the chinchilla. And it goes through these death throes and agonies. And it's just all the squeaky pickle in my hand as a sound effect. So you never know you're going to do that until that thing comes along and, and happens. And probably there had never been an opportunity truly for uh, uh, people to do a completely unwritten, uncensored comedy on the radio before that time. Now, you couldn't play any songs with drug references yeah. on the radio. but And you couldn't say the 10 uh, sacred words that you can't say on the radio, whatever they are. And uh, But you could do everything else. Yeah, I, I've actually heard that, because that was a um, George Carlin routine, of course. Yes. And I heard that that actually wasn't a thing until he did the routine. Then some radio guys heard it, and they assumed that was a real thing. 
Well, it, 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 it was it was broadcast on on the radio and somebody objected. And, you know, in a, in we have a lot of things we have to deal with in America that you don't have to deal with in other countries. And one of them is the strange thing called the Federal Communications Commission which uh, used to be kind of a liberal organization, so to speak, and then became a very conservative, so to speak. Um, they used to insist there, there, there was a law that was um, that if you uh, were a political speaker, you had to give somebody else the other side at equal time, the equal time rule. And uh, that, of course, that vanished, so... Now you have don't you quite have equal networks, but we're working on that. You know, <laughs> I you know my character George Tirebiter actually yeah. ran for uh, vice president. It was a little too much to run for president, but he ran for vice president in 1976, and uh, uh, making this character go through, and it, it was really not just a year, but really 18 months. Uh, and it was kind of my, it was this uh, American bicentennial, 200 years. And I thought, well, I got to do something for this, you know, because we, we, we're, we're an all-American all comedy group here. So running, running for, uh, as being an old guy, having affairs on the side that everybody sort of knew about, uh, being a denizen of Hollywood. He was like a cross between our Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, <clears throat> and uh, and Ronald Reagan. And it was great to invest myself in this character and actually go out and do, you know, do stump speeches and all that kind of stuff. So once you have, and we had a, a nationwide campaign, we had cocoons for Papoon, <clears throat> Our presidential candidate was George Papoon, who always appeared with a paper bag over his head with eyeballs cut out because um, presidents and candidates were uh, running into problems uh, with assassination uh, during those years. And uh, we felt that if you wore a bag over your head, why nobody could ever tell really who was there. So you could be safe, safer. George, nobody ever shoots a vice president. See, funny thing, I think a lot of modern politicians actually make a lot more sense if you see them through the lens of performance art. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the things that nobody ever really, really talks about at Firesign is that we come directly from uh, at the very earliest stages of performance art, right out of Dada, right out of surrealism. Uh, yeah right out of the, the that school which barely preceded us by 20 years and uh, we we always considered ourselves american surrealists we are carrying on the surrealist tradition you don't sell records that way <laughs> you know you don't walk into columbia executive and say look um, we have this really surreal idea uh not even then uh, but that I feel that we definitely come out of that literary tradition as we come out of uh, science fiction of that tradition, uh, certainly come out of American radio, which is unique uh, as it was always commercial and and uh, un unlike um, 
uh, all of Europe. It's very interesting. I was at a, a conference in, in London once and had to explain to everybody that there never was a national radio station. There was no non-commercial radio. Everything was commercial. Dig it. It's different, really different than what, you know, it is on uh, in the, the UK and on the continent. I mean, so, uh, in Flemish radio, really? Flemish radio. Uh, how many stations do you have? Like 110? I don't know. You know, it was this huge number for this m very small uh, uh, language group. I thought, how cool is that? You know, <laughs> I could, at least since we set one of our pieces in Flemland, it seemed perfectly right. I mean, that seems crazy these days that it's, you can almost have, especially if you include the internet, you can have a channel for any taste now, like for any audience. Well, I was going to say that when I ran for that uh, presidential camp, vice presidential campaign, we had a platform that uh, included it was one one man, one person, one channel. Okay, that has happened. Yes. Now I'm not sure that I would, that it was a good idea. Now that we look at it 50 years later, you know, 45 years later, one man wants maybe too many people to have too many channels. It's possible, you know. Um, don't, yeah, don't say that. I, you'll do me out of a job, sir. That's right. You do you without a bloody job. We'll take you right off the air. We'll discriminate against you. Um, <laughs> the uh, one of the other uh, uh, platforms on the program was uh, one organism, one vote. We felt if we just extended the vote, not just to everybody. That's hard enough, you know. But if the dogs and kitty cats and, you know, everybody who was engaged, birds, uh, you know, the, the trees out in my window, everybody who's engaged in the process of living on this earth ought to be able to have an equal voice. So, and the last one of his three uh, campaign promises was the guaranteed annual year. I have to realize this was, we were having dreadful wars at the time. People were being sucked out of their homes and sent away to ghastly places to shoot people they didn't know. And uh, we thought the guaranteed annual year would put us right back. Now, I'm looking forward to 2021 as being the guaranteed annual year. Yeah, it doesn't feel like we got a full year this year, sir. No, no, we certainly didn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, something you said there does uh, strike at something I want to ask you about because it does seem like so many things that I think Firesign were one of the most out there kind of like with the satire and kind of your surrealism and all this but now so much has happened that was in those records as you alluded to there do you think it's impossible to satire like the news and the president certainly at the moment and all these things these days well, I think if the, if the four of us were back in business, honestly, I think we could have taken this administration on. Really, Peter Bergman and I, in the his last year of his life, uh, this was when Trump was first running. And we did a lot of funny stuff about, about Trump back in that day before he was actually, uh, uh, president would we as a group tackle it i think that we would be writing about from a multiplicity of media is well if i were walking into a writing meeting with phil and phil and pete i i would say look you know it, it's everybody's broadcasting it's coming from everywhere it's not just channels that we have to switch between 
but it's opinions, voices, echoes. Uh, what do we make out of that? And because only one part of that would be this ugly president who's about to go away <laughs> if they have to drag him out. Um, it's, it's it, yes, I think I think we would have tackled any. I mean, we we were writing during the Vietnam War. We wrote, "Don't crush that dwarf." Hand me the pliers. It, uh, at, Kent, at Kent State, Kent State was the kids were being shot by National Guardsmen, and we're writing. We're in our writing session writing. Well, what happens? Well, the high school disappears. We're not, you know, it's indirect. Yeah. It's, it, it's like, let's get to the bigger issues. And what was it? How am I going to graduate now? Says Porgy Tirebiter. Well, you know, how are they going to graduate now? It's a, a, a frightening situation. Yeah. Not for me. I'm at home. You know, I'm at home. I'm staying at home. Judith is staying at home with me. She goes to the store. You know, our son Preston is living with us currently. But, you know, the big wide world out there, we probably did the last performance that we're ever going to do. Judith and I in Kansas City on the 14th, 13th of uh, March. And that that's the last show that anybody ever saw. Curtain curtain went down the next day in in all I, all over the world, not just here. And so it's extraordinary to know that millions of people had lost their jobs, they lost yeah. all access to anything. You couldn't sweep a floor because the studio was closed. Let alone, you know, uh, make the boss a cup of coffee or be the boss. It was all, and so that was really shocking when that happened, and it happened to everybody and kind of everybody in my world. Not that everybody in my world isn't show business by any means, but you know, it's reflected. If you look at Facebook, you know, it, it, you 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 see, ah, oh, I'm, I'm my beard is growing. I'm sitting at home, and uh, I'm sure that if Firesign, the four of us had been together, we would have four screens. And we would have a show and we would be doing it every single week. I'm sure we would be. Uh, Phil Proctor is, is now doing, uh, not a, not a comedy show, but an interview, uh, show, um, called the Sexy Boomers Show. Yeah. Uh, interviewing great, interviewing great people who are, you know, our lovely, um, uh, uh show business friends. Um, I, I, I was a guy who, who, I, I was the one who left Los Angeles. They started building the big buildings downtown and, and the police helicopters started coming over with their searchlights looking for nothing. And, uh, and so I, I really had to get out of town, which, which means my connection with that, um, that crazy Hollywood world, uh, starts with my going to the movies when I'm say five years old and, and go, <laughs> you know, and goes on, on through all, all of those years. Those are the George Tirebiter years. Tirebiter got to live the great golden age of, uh, of radio, the golden age of film. Uh, he got to be blacklisted. He went through a, a lot of the history of this, this art form. 
that we're all engaged in and dealing, having a historical character, someone that I could put into, uh, into a studio in 1945 or, or a Los Angeles bungalow in 1953 in a kind of a noir LA, which, you know, uh, that's, that's the kind of world of Hollywood and, uh, Los Angeles that I really respond to. Otherwise, 30 years, more than 30 years here on Whidbey Island, which is, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, if you were looking at a map of the, of the United States, it would be in the extreme upper left-hand corner, just south of the Canadian border on on a quite a long island, actually. It's a 50-mile long island, but we're at the bottom of it. And, um, you know, for years, we just had to leave town to to do work. Now there's no work, so we don't have to leave town. It's good in any situation. <laughs> it works. It works. One of the things which I was very struck by, again, I've kind of like, uh, obviously, I listened back to Dope Sounds of the 70s, which is available now on uh, vinyl special edition mm -hmm. release. As of today, which I'm very proud to have you on, on release yes, date. Thank it, you very it, much it, for making time for our it, show. It is there out today, a release date. These things used to be really important. You'd get, you know, those music magazines and when am I? Oh, I look, I entered it at 425. How are we going to go up? Yeah, it's great. To, and and I, ha I have to say about record albums that that form, two things, the art form of the 12 by 12 or the 24. When it opens, the, this is a great art form. You could have more fun, and this album has more fun on the on those four twelve by twelve pages. Plus, there's an insert inside the album which has another whole thing, including a great biography of Firesign by Taylor Jessen, who was the producer of this album, um, and a little ticket in the front so you can download another hour of comedy. Uh, it's an extraordinary release. I think yeah. the uh, the LPs are, are are limited to 500. I think that's all they're going to do. So, you know, it's um, to come back into the the business, if you like, at this time uh, w with uh, with a product I can hold in my hands, and it reminds me of how it used to be, and kind of the wonderful turnabout of it being 50 years. You know, that, that the cycle is the, the side of the record. You know, it's still going around. It's still going around. We haven't gotten there yet. And, uh, so that, that sense of, of, of 50 years and very little time has passed, honestly. Um, in the last year, Hardly any time has passed. <laughs> it's, yeah. it, we couldn't tell Monday from Friday from Thursday. But I, th I think I, I, I said to you before we were actually on that what's been great for me about this time is this, uh, uh, the podcast, the listening, the fact that everyone can now have access, their own access to whatever they want to do. It's crazy. It's confusing. But on the other hand, uh, I, I, I wouldn't be talking to you. You wouldn't be talking to me. Why? Because we've, we'd, we'd have to go through somebody at a big, major, major, major corporation. And it, it wouldn't happen because they wouldn't care. Now we all care about each other. I think this is what's happening, yeah. too, is that we do care. We don't take it for granted.
anymore. Nothing. Don't take anything for granted. You know. I think like a number of us, and probably myself included, I'll be honest, uh, had to almost get bored of our media, like all the kind of input around us. And we had to take it to a personal level because we couldn't take it to a personal level anymore. We couldn't just meet up with all our friends and all our family like that. So suddenly that became the most precious commodity in the world, as it should have been all the way along. And we're just reminded how kind of um, tenuous and precious it is. You know, I've, I've lost friends to, to COVID. I've, you know, had friends who've uh, been seriously ill. And uh, it just, I, I haven't been able to see my mum, apart from to drop off shopping to her, then leave immediately. You know, it's... Uh, mm. Yeah. It reminds you how precious these things are. Well, you you realize that uh, in, instead of I have a story and you have a story, it's like everybody has a story and not just everybody whose picture you've seen on the television news, but everybody. And I, there hasn't been a time where that's been the case, maybe since the Second World War. And even then, you know, the United States wasn't being bombed. So, except for those that cannon shot off California coast. But, you know, I'm saying this is, this engages everybody. What is so weird about being an, an American under this go, going administration is that there's no sense here of, of everybody. It's only me, 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 me. Well, you're inflicting, well, I don't want to wear a mask. Well, what do you mean? This is my religious right to go into a church and then go into a, a store and, and infect everybody. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it, it, no, you have to, it's, either have to look out for everybody or the whole thing will fall apart. And it's not just us. We got an idiot here. We'll get rid of the idiot. But it's everybody. Um, and back in the day when Fireside were writing their first albums and we realized that we had an audience that was young, that we had a fresh group of young people. Maybe they were high school seniors, maybe college, no later than college seniors, that kind of age range. And that we knew just a little bit more than they did and that we had access and we used that access to tell our listeners what it was that we knew and we put it on record albums just to make it that more much more uh, uh so you had to listen to it that much more often until the complexities of it sunk in until four guys writing four guys input four guys so nothing ever wasn't massaged, you know. It 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 had uh, it had all four of our hands in it all the time. So there's uh, and Peter, for example, could never leave a word, leave a word alone. I mean, uh, Pete, please, uh, no more puns. So uh, uh, that messaging that we were doing in this very, you know, the record won't be out for another six months, you know, in that kind of very slow. Uh, uh, but I got to say it was Columbia Records, so it was hugely professional. And, you know, I mean, worldwide, all of that, we were, you know, our records were in, in, uh, um, in, in the PX in Vietnam. We have many stories about uh, soldiers in Vietnam li listening to our records while they were being bombarded or, you know, just to get away from it all. First album. And uh, so, so... Uh, that was extraordinary. That was really very lucky that we had 
Columbia that we had this big, big label who, who just considered us to be another rock band. Yeah. And if you sold records, didn't care. <laughs> they weren't listening. You know, they were, they were just making the money. And so it took them quite a while for them to get around to the fact that we weren't making them a lot of money doing uh, these, <laughs> doing a uh, 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 theater on LP albums and making it into an art form. That wasn't really what the business was there. So I, I think that you're, you're like what Feinstein Theater did, what uh, Monty Python did, what uh, the goons did, what uh, the goodies, uh, all of these, they, they were rock stars. Like there, there is no separation like that. You had for the first time you saw rock stars being jealous, wanting to be the comedians as opposed to the other <laughs> way around. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, well, rock stars, uh, well, comedians always wanted to be producers. I think, you know, the goal in Hollywood is if you could be a producer, you know, you got to get there. There was, there were, um, from our time, certainly Steve Martin, I think, is the great success from our era. He, he We started exactly the same time uh, at the Pasadena Ice House. We were on the same bill. The, our opening night, it may not have been Steve's opening night, but it was very early on. And uh, so you see where um, uh, that kind of individual talent uh, and, and his incredible abilities uh, took him out of the stand-up business and to the real business of Hollywood. I think stand-up is like an interval. Stand-up became, um, I was about to say, too popular. Stand-up be- became a way of insulting people and, uh, and of having an audience that, in, that you could uh, chew up. And I, that is, you know, I, I remember 20 years ago when we had a comedy, our comedy show was on Sirius XM. Well, it was just XM then. And uh, uh, I had to call him and say, please don't program what you're programming that's coming on before us because I can't have my children listen. And I mean, I'm not a, not a squeamish guy, but they were, it was horrible, horrible. And uh, um, and we got off that channel quickly because we didn't belong there. But it's like it's like there's these shoots of uh, uh, an improv is another one, you know, that have become businesses. And they're really it's improv is is it's not bigger than, you know, bigger than Shakespeare. Improv is a technique. It's a learning technique. It's a device you use as, as an actor. Uh, uh, it, you can learn it, but it isn't like that's not the thing to me, you know. It, it's something we knew and used. And I'll tell you, uh, one of the places that I really learned it was at the Renaissance Pleasure Fair back in the 60s because you had to walk around for hours at a time Yes, madam, and how are you, sir? Yes, blah, blah, blah. you know, it's at being it's speaking a foreign language, yeah, and 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 improvising constantly with people that you didn't know. Up close magic, I used to call it. If you can do this up close magic, where it's like, it's here it is. There's the carrot, and it's gone. How'd you do that? Oh, I don't know. Um, that's that's that kind of improv and and writing, writing a script, writing a play, writing a movie. All you're doing is improving. Then you're writing down what you like. 
It's all improv. So this kind of little specialty of it has never Im- impressed me as being like the the bigness of theater. It's a useful device, but, you know, it's something you learn and use. And God knows we did and had to be fast. Be, you know, I've been asked that, well, how did you... Uh, how did you deal with being on the radio with three other guys? I said, I shut up. Basically, you know, learn to when learn when to be quiet. Yeah. Learn when you have come to the end of your sentence and it's back to you. Definitely. There was one thing I did want to ask you about. I love the fact that with Firesign, you definitely do kind of like uh, take on uh, people in the news and kind of uh, current figures uh, throughout your career. But it's not in the way of kind of like uh, directly shooting at them or trying to like take them down that way. It's like it's more the emperor's new clothes. You show that they're naked in front of you. And I love that style of it. Was that something you purposefully did? Um, Yeah, that was definitely we we never did the kind of uh, Saturday Night Live kind of parody. Yes. That's where you take you'd really have a real Coca-Cola commercial and you'd really parody it. You know, you do something else that looked like it or you directly parody the evening news. Um, That was just nothing that we ever even thought of doing. It was always indirect. Um, Bird of prey motors. What does that mean? You know, get a lube job with Edgar Allan Poe. When are we closed? Never more. I mean, these things just come out of the air and they're just funny. See, um, as far as, uh, current political situations, when we were on the radio, yeah, we generally uh, talked about what was directly, uh, on the air. Sometimes we would take, take the time to really talk about things as we did amongst ourselves. Um, anyway, not just on that hour of radio. Um, I, I, very early, very early in 68, when we first began performing live, we were essentially doing political theater. And because we didn't record this, nobody ever talks about it, really. But the first big shows that we did were completely political theater. One one was uh, called Profiles in Barbecue Sauce. Uh, which proved conclusively that LBJ had killed uh, uh, Jackie, Jack Kennedy. And, uh, you know, and then somebody uh, killed Bobby Kennedy and we couldn't do the show anymore. Um, this, those kinds of things kept happening. Another show was uh, Freak for a Week. Freak for a Week was a uh, quiz show, a game show, uh, <clears throat> in which you were given, fed acid, and allowed to go through a complete acid uh, evolution of your entire life, where suddenly it was, it was open to everybody, and I want everybody to be involved in this, and so it gave, but we have to control it. So it's not just everybody, but we have to keep it in our control. And maybe, is there any way of making money from this, actually? You know, following this guy, a freak, following this freak through his uh, 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 Faustian evolution. You know, so, and this, but these were doing the, I mean, we went, it, we started that show by going around with spray cans and spraying the entire audience like this. Everybody thought they were on acid that we were going, we were spraying them with acid. I mean, it was, that was really something. Those, that kind of era. 
I can tell you that the you know that the, the the wonderful artists in Manhattan and L.A. and the people who were doing happenings and all of that, they were great. But but that's what we were doing, and we were doing it with real political intent in front of basically high school and young college kids. Yeah, some of whom were in danger of being drafted. Yeah, crazy <clears throat> times. Uh, did did you? How how was the writing relationship between the four of you? Was it a like I know there's different groups who kind of like uh, perhaps did or didn't get on as well behind the scenes as in front of the microphone, and kind of sometimes those things fueled it. But was it kind of a uh, always a friendly relationship with the four of you? I as <clears throat> as I say, um, we were the Fireside Theater when we were writing, and and and. When the opportunity came after we had the regular thing of being on record every year and doing a show and being kind of in the system of rock and roll, uh, once we were no longer on, on that major label, then we had to come up with other things that we could write because we certainly weren't popular enough to, uh, you know, sustain our careers by by playing any more coffee houses, you know, or, or, or even, um, you know, we were at Carnegie Hall in 1974. So that was our peak at, at that point. Um, Proctor and Bergman had a two man comedy act. They could tour. It was easy for them to do that. It was very hard for the four of us to afford it. Uh, you know, you know what you, you were, it's, you got, you know, 450 was a ticket price in those days. I mean, it was, there was, you, you, there were no $300 front row seats with extra, you know, extra champagne with the artists afterward. <laughs> that was a, that came much later. So, um, our, our relationship was, uh, like we were brothers, really. I mean, I don't have any brothers. So they, I adopted them and they were often pesky. Sometimes they just disappear. Sometimes they would not pay attention to you. Um, but I've learned w because my wife Judith has a brother and a sister and I've kind of learned about that, having those relationships. And I feel that's, that's how we were. When we were together, we were almost completely together. It was as if we hadn't been apart, kind of like your Thanksgiving dinner sort of thing. And uh, uh, did, we, did we fight over things? Yeah, but the opportunity to actually create something was stronger than any sort of, you, re, you resolve the conflict because you're making something. And, and the opportunity to make, to create art uh, uh, irresistible. I mean, you, you know, what, what kind of compromise would you like me to make? You know, uh, it's still going to be great because it's going to be us. You know, it can't be bad because the four of us, we don't do anything bad. So well, well, what do we got to work out here? You know, um, and, and the miracle w was really in after 40 years after coming back to make three albums for uh, uh, Rhino Records in, yes. <clears throat> in 98, 99, and 2001. Um, really, the, f the first of those albums, uh, Give Me Immortality or Give Me Death, which kind of expressed our, our whole boomer philosophy, since our audience was boomers. Uh, <coughs> they were kind of at that point in their lives. 
And uh, but Phil came in. Phil Austin came in with a full-fledged character of the day uh, disc jock, the, the the guy on on the air, who was a uh, a, a Chicano from L.A. Nothing like Phil Austin. He was a character. And he came in with this wonderful guy, and we just all fell in behind him and said, okay, radio now. And he's going to be radio now because he's got this, and he has a, he has a, you know, and we knew exactly who this character was. Now, now, is it politically incorrect to do the, vo- the voice of someone whose body you're not occupying? No, I don't think so. I think it's always correct that satire comedy always has to borrow from everything. Otherwise, you know, can a uh, uh, it would take the heart out of it, It'd take the laughs out of it. So, yeah. in in the in in the next album, we we had a bunch of really cross ideas, and so in a sense, that album crosses it crosses the country it puts people in 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 in, uh, in the it it's called boom dot bust and so it's at that moment where the economy we knew was just going to fall apart at, at any moment it took six years but it fell apart and then the last album and we had no, we created characters once again for that album the characters came to life and there were moments where uh something wouldn't work and we'd have to throw it out why doesn't it work? I don't know. It just doesn't. I can't. It's not there. And the last album um, uh, in that series, which was the last album that we did together, uh, Bride of Fire Sign, was there contention in that? There was a feeling amongst us that we were writing uh, the last thing that we would write for these characters. And so it took a while to, to, to get each one of these characters. Peter and I wanted to go in with Porgy and Mudhead from the Dwarf album. And we, we had a way of advancing them in age and experience and time, but still having their same uh, J. Porge relationship. Uh, these characters have been with us for 35 years, 40 years, you know? Yeah, so. Yeah, go go ahead. No, no, sorry, I was just going to interject that I, I kind of definitely get that feeling that even though there is a different temperament to each album and a different kind of feeling, of like an, an evolved feeling, just like as you evolve as you grow older, like those characters evolve, which I absolutely love, but uh, it always feels like it's the same characters. You know, you never question that it's the same people just further along in their journey. Yeah, well, that, and to to be able to take characters like that, I mean, this is a novelist's device or, or a short story writer's device. And, uh, if you can take your characters and, uh, evolve them, they don't have to evolve a lot. I don't think that, uh, 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 Marlowe evolves a lot until, until he, his life is gone. In the last books, uh, the last Chandler, uh, Philip Marlowe books, where he kind of gives up and goes away, which is sort of what Chandler did. Uh, Didn't want to do that. (laughs) Didn't want to do that. I'm sorry. Repeat your question if, if I didn't answer it. No, 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 no. That, that answer is lovely. I was, I was just listening. (laughs) Uh, The other thing, which I 
was like so you said you said you knew that that was going to be the last album like there was a feeling that that was the last thing you were going to do together yeah it was um it was a it was a real gift from Rhino Records. The people at Rhino who had, we met uh, twenty years before that, at the very beginning, independent record label producers are very valuable in comedy. This new album is from Stand Up Records, which is a uh, an independent label. The guy who runs it, the guy who loves it, so he runs it. You know the same thing with Rhino. The guys who ran it loved it. They loved comedy. They loved us. They wanted, they wouldn't, you know, can we do something? Can we put that out for you? So there was a, 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 a kind of uh, a real a different relationship there. And I'm talking about right around 1980 with Rhino and then coming back 20 years after that to do these last albums. Did we think there would be, I'll tell you, we always had in mind a trilogy. Uh, after the first one, and well, can we do a second one? Oh, sure. You know, it's like, oh, well, then we got to do three. And so, uh, in the the first one was clearly a millennial album. This is all about twelve midnight on you know December thirty first, nineteen ninety nine. What's going to happen? Every nobody knew it. The clocks were all going to stop and everything. And so it was a great. Um, we, we, as a group, were always attracted to um, anniversaries, holidays, I- events that you could organize around. So uh, that was New Year's, and the next one we said, "Well, let's." We've never done a Fourth of July album. Let's do something about the Fourth of Julie, and uh, so there. So, and F- Peter was ill during much of that recording. I'm sorry to say. And so the three of us had had to, to uh, take more of the load, um, production load. We had to keep the script because Peter normally kept the script at this time on his laptop. Uh, and, and we just lost him finally as a character and had to leave the end open for when he was well and, uh, and would come back in and record the actual end uh the last lines of the album um so that what that didn't go as you know that didn't go that well and that and and that album was what was which would have won a grammy that year because there was nothing against it uh they forgot to nominate it somebody in the office just dropped the ball and it's so we never got the grammy we should have gotten one you know um because the next, the year before it was the the two thousand year old man. I mean, come on, you got it, boy, guys, it's yours. And I've forgotten what it was the the last year that we did it. Um, and so coming back then, because we knew we had to do the third album, then it, then it, it seemed clear that we would want it to come back to these characters, to Porgy and Mudhead who the, from Don't Crush That Dwarf, the teenagers who, who lose their high school and not both two teenagers. Uh, and uh, once a guy who's already graduated, but they, they, to bring them back in the world of uh, work and the work that they're doing is uh, of an imaginary kind of work where you actually have real tubes that information is going down and you send all this information down these real tubes. That's what they do. And then they have to drive a truck. Uh, 
This was originally okay. I came in with here's here's how things start. I came in with guys. Have you ever seen uh, uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein? I haven't, unfortunately. I don't think it like made it over here as much. Yeah, Albert. Uh, yeah, Abbott and Costello. Terrible movie, but it's a funny idea. They're two guys, truck drivers, who have to take you know uh, 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 Dracula's body from one place to another. So they got they have this monster in their in their truck. And I thought, well, what a funny idea if Porgy and Mudhead were truck drivers and they they had to carry what turned out to be eyeballs. And uh, human eyeballs, which you can't just send down the tube. And so we had them and the kind of what, where were they going to go? What was that their life going to be like? How did they were, they were going to go to work and what was that like? And then the other side of that was the Nick Danger character from our first, uh, second album and, uh, and the most popular character, most widely known, uh, and, and which belonged uh, to Phil Austin, this was his character, and and then his gang around it: Sergeant Bradshaw, Peter Bergman, and uh, and the sleazy weasel, uh, Rocky Rococo, and which was Proctor. And uh, so there was a uh, a kind of a little family that we had to bring to a, a conclusion as well. Yeah, and. As always with Nick, he finds himself in a situation he can't figure out, even though he has a third eye. And uh, he comes back and returns to his office, and Frank Gehry has redone it, so it, it doesn't make any sense at all. And he now has a dog uh, as a partner. And uh, it was just, it got to be a lot of fun to write the, a, a subsequent adventure. And then we even had a musical number because Rocky and, and Bradshaw are running for a, a mayor of Fun Fun Town. And so we decided, why don't we do one of those, you're, you know, you know we're, we're just friends kind of songs, you know, where I'm your friend, I hate you a lot, you're my friend, and we don't get along. One of those songs. And so it suddenly we got to throw in a musical number. So it became a lot of fun to work out until uh, how is it going to end? Well, how do these things end? You know, they, they always end with a lightning strike at the top of the tower, something like that. Um, did we have, was there conflict in writing it? I don't know. I've wiped it out. If there was any, I just listened to the records. Yeah. Uh, one, one sketch I did want to ask you about, cause I absolutely love it. I don't know if you remember a lot about recording it and, very kind of tropical, but your Thanksgiving sketch. Um, pass the Indian, please. There, I, there's, sorry, I'm not sure of the name, but well, the, there's uh, there's two Thanksgiving pieces. One is temporarily Humboldt County, which is from the first album, and the other one is is uh, it, we call Pass the Indian, please, which was an encore that we did that Phil Austin wrote and brought in and, and we said, Oh, we, we really have to do this fast. And so it was, uh, and the encore that we would, before the show, we would warm up by doing it as quickly as we could. And uh, it was one of those things we did just all four of us uh, uh, in, in a line at that, at that point. Um, yeah, that came out of Austin's mind, and because we were very closely involved with the Native American world at a certain point in uh, 1967, where the uh, the Hopi 
uh, traditional Hopi were um, essentially using Peter and Radio Free Oz as a vehicle to transmit what they felt was very important, which was the Hopi prophecy about <laughs> don't screw up here because we're all going to be really in trouble if you do. Uh, basically, cl climate, you know, basically climate and atomic bombs and all those kinds of things. So we were very close, or they were close to us, I should say. And and uh, it was it was so Phil. We all wrote documentaries, uh, three documentaries, and Phil's then uh, became the basis for that first album. Uh, of talking about American history and and uh, the essential elimination of the Native American population. <sighs> Gee, we've done 57 minutes, 36 seconds here, Doctor. Have you got enough time for two more questions? I do. One. Question one. Awesome. Okay, first... Question one. <laughs> well, I feel very structured now suddenly. So <laughs> the first one was about the, um, like, uh, outside Fireside Theatre, you've done uh, kind of a lot of work for voiceover of animation now. Uh, I just wonder if you could talk a bit about working on Bugs Life. And oh, yeah. Jones and yeah, but Bugs Life was, it was enormous fun doing, uh, mm. you know, doing a major Disney role. And, you know, I still get little checks after 22 years because people are watching it now on uh, Disney Plus. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Disney. Um, it was great. Uh, it was hard uh, because you're there with stars. Who, I mean, you know, real stars. And so there's that that kind of intimidation. You know, uh, we recorded in the in the in the Disney Studios in uh, Hollywood, where you know every voice had ever been that had ever been recorded with recorded in that studio. You know, back to uh, 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 the very earliest movies. So at the corner of Goofy and and Mickey, I think it, it is on <laughs> on the lot. Um, I loved doing it. Um, it was um, it was really something to go to the premiere of it. Uh, it, was one, one, it was the second movie out of Pixar, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful film. I think probably the best, you know. There's series movies and all that, but as one film, Bugs Life really has a lot of heart. It teaches. It's a it's a teaching film about how you how you get how you do it. How do you do it? How do you get out of this one? You know, it's a good movie. That's oh, amazing. Question. And the the final question, uh, I do like to finish these things off by just asking for a little bit of advice from my guests so I can grow as a person, presenter, and whatever else. And uh, I, I know you know a thing or two about radio, so uh, given my radio show is quite new, I'd like some advice. Like, what, what's your best advice to a, a, a new radio DJ? A new radio DJ? Well, yeah. I'd say right now uh, you're about... Um, one second from the end of your show. And so you have to say, I've really enjoyed this interview. Uh, you can come back anytime to the Dr. Squeeze show, and I will. David Osman, you've been a wonderful guest. I've This hour's flown by. I hope you will come back and grace us with your presence again. We've merely scratched the surface of your wonderful career. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Oh, you guys are so crazy! Ha ha ha! I think that's as funny today as it first was back in the sizzling 70s. That's right, I'm Dexter Fong, and 
Nothing will make me forget the thrill we had making funny records back then. Yes, my late partner, Hideo Wallbanger, and I were the men of modern comedy. And today, when the satellite net is crammed with the stupid drivel of the hot humorous 100, where can a gone cat like yourself get the laughs that we were making then just for you? What thrilling moments. Well, they're all yours now on a double fun, double deal. Dope humor of the 70s, volumes one and two. Who can forget such modern comedy hits as Cheech Chong's Reuben and the Jets or <laughs> Kong, Ress, and Wonders Beat the Electrician? Who did you have your arm up when you first sighed to bootleg by the four or five crazy guys? Or cut a rug to the antics of Hilario Gomez and the Wanderers? Yes, all million sellers, plus the fab fire sign, together again on this bonus extra. Yes, a rare collection of Phil, 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 and Phil at their hilarious, inscrutable best, if you order now. Oh, God, wouldn't it be great to laugh again and stop bumping into things? Well, bozos, get on it and do it every day. <laughs> now the 70s aren't gone, if you're still smiling, order now. Right Dope Humor Offer Box 69, California. That's Right Dope Humor Offer Box 69, California, now! Thank you to my guests this week, David Osman, Michelle Sewell, and the late, great David Prowse. And remember, folks, until next week, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. I've been Doug Squee, and that was my show. I'm not trying to win. I'm not doing this because I want to beat someone. Because I hate someone, or because because I want to blame someone. It's not because it's fun. God knows it's not because it's easy. It's not even because it works, because it hardly ever does. I do what I do because it's right. Because it's decent. And above all, it's kind. It's just that. Just kind. Hey, you know, maybe there's no point in any of this at all. But it's the best I can do. Why not? Just at the end. Just be kind.